Daniel 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. Uh, my intention for this week up until this morning was to preach the entire chapter. And, and then as, as I started to sit with this chapter throughout the week and, and I was studying, there was just some things that I felt like I couldn't let go of. And as I was praying this morning, I felt like the Lord was pushing me in a certain direction. And so we're going to slow down in this chapter for a moment. Uh, and we're going to slow down so that we don't brush over things that we really need to hear. So my goal today through this text is I just want to go after the enemy. I just want to go after him. Um, what I love about Daniel chapter 7 is it's pretty clear that the enemy's defeated. And I love that. I love that he's defeated. And I think this text is pulling on some things that we need to address because even though he's defeated, he holds on to power that he doesn't have in our lives. And so I want to I hit on those things. I want to go after those things. And I want to make sure that we as, as a people are equipped to understand in greater ways what God has called us to, what God has restored us for, and how he is going to continue doing just an incredible work until he returns. We've come to the point in Daniel where the book changes. In fact, many people, they grow up in church and they've heard a lot about the early stories of Daniel. They've heard about the fiery furnace. They've even heard about the king who became a beast. They may have heard of Daniel in the lion's den once or twice. And then you come to chapter 7 and, and there's usually two responses from chapter 7. The first is really weird interpretations. Really weird interpretations that take this book way out of context and start to misapply and you just go all over the place. The second is complete and total avoidance. And so you have people that come to the second half of the book of Daniel, which changes from narrative to apocalyptic literature, and they usually run from it in one way or the other. So this morning, we need to talk about apocalyptic literature. Woo! Yeah. You've, you didn't know that we were going to talk about the apocalypse this morning. Um, that's not actually what we mean when, when we say apocaly apocalyptic literature. I say that five times fast. So what is it? What is apocalyptic literature? Well, it's literature that gives us a heavenly perspective on our earthly situation. Apocalyptic literature, the, the second half of Daniel, the book of Revelation in the Bible. There's a, a couple other places, some think in, in Zechariah and some in Ezekiel, that there is this literature that gives us a picture of what heaven sees when it looks at the world. Okay? It's a heavenly perspective on our earthly situation. It, it's filled with imagery. And, and this is something that is so important for us to get. All of these images are based in Scripture. Uh, one of the things I think is the worst thing you can do is open the Bible to Revelation and say, I'm going to start here and not have any context throughout the whole Old Testament. I remember the first time, one of the first times I ever talked with Brandon Esparza and we were talking about theology and we made, somebody made a joke about Revelation and he goes, I love it when people read Revelation without reading their Old Testament. You need the Old Testament to be able to understand apocalyptic literature correctly because there's images that's, that are being used that are supposed to draw the reader in to greater understanding. And those images are biblically based. So, apocalyptic literature 
is literature that uses imagery to draw our attention to what God sees when he looks at the earth as it is. Biblical authors assume that we're going to trace images and symbols through the biblical story to help us interpret this passage. They're not trying to say, figure this out on your own, go sit quietly somewhere. They're saying, look at the Old Testament. (laughs) Read what's come before. Look at the images. Allow those to anchor and control your interpretation. While this type of literature can feel foreign to us, we have to remember that it would not have been as foreign to the original readers. The original readers would not have felt like this was as foreign to them as it is to us. But there are some things that we need to avoid when we come to apocalyptic literature, right? So we want our, our, our definitions and our interpretations anchored in the biblical text. That's true. But some of the other things we want to make sure we avoid is taking everything literally. <laughs> When we get to apocalyptic literature, it's really important that we do not take everything literally. In our passage today, this is what this means. There is not a literal lion-like beast wandering the earth with eagle's wings. That's not what this is trying to, it's imagery. It's trying to draw us into understanding. The second thing is that the interpretation of the text needs to be held in light of the current events of the original readers, right? If we read apocalyptic literature and we draw the line to 2022, we just draw straight to there, we're going to be sorely, sorely misunderstanding the biblical text. We need to draw the line to what the original readers would have understood, and then from there, we can interpret it for what it means for us today. And the second thing is we got to be really careful not to try to understand everything in apocalyptic literature perfectly. One of my favorite things that happens in the book of Daniel is at the end of Daniel, Daniel's still like, I just, I don't get it. That's really good news because that means that we do not have to understand everything perfectly from this text. But we got to keep the main things the main things and hold and anchor ourselves on those and interpret the unclear in light of the clear. All right, so that's a quick overview on apocalyptic literature that we need. That's going to be driving our interpretation for the rest of the book. But there's another interpretation and a context window that we need. We need to understand what's happening to the original readers. So look at Daniel 7, verse 1 for me. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Okay, this is not time travel. Daniel 6 was after Belshazzar's reign. This is not time travel. What this is, is it's giving a picture of a vision that happened some time ago. Belshazzar was the king in Babylon uh, four kings after Nebuchadnezzar. And during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, near the end of his reign, life became quite easy for the people of God in Babylon. And then after Nebuchadnezzar, we have this king come in named Belshazzar who is arrogant and indifferent to God. And so what might that lead to for the people of God in Babylon? That might lead to some fear and some insecurity that things are going to change for us. So what can the people of God expect from this new ruler who they know to be arrogant and indifferent to God? It would have been a time of uncertainty, 
a time of a lack of security for the people of God. They would have been looking out at the, the circumstances of their world, and they, sa- they would have said, we made so much progress under the last king. What are we supposed to do now under this king who doesn't appreciate our laws, who, who doesn't appreciate our God? This is the context of this vision. We're going to spend some time in verses 1 to 8, and then we're going to move from there to verses 9 to 14. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to read verses 1 to 8 really quickly, thinking of that context in mind, a time of uncertainty, a lack of security for the people of God. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. This is the word of the Lord. We have this vision in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, of four beasts. And if we're not careful, we'll say, that was weird, and just move on. <laughs> but that's not, that's not the correct response to this. In fact, if we're reading this story appropriately, I want you to imagine that you're standing in front of a great sea, a great sea that's lost all control, it's chaotic, it's... It's a storm, and and you look out and you see immense power and chaos and turmoil. And then as you're watching at this sea, you see these crazy-looking beasts start to come out of the sea. Is your response in that moment going to be, well, that was weird? Or is your response going to be one of fear? It's probably going to be one of fear. You're going to read that text. You're going to sit in that moment as you watch these beasts come out of this great sea of chaos, and you are going to be feeling within your heart terror. Terror. That's the the emotions that Daniel chapter 7 verses 1 through 8 is trying to get out of us. It's trying to invoke fear. It's trying to get us to say, look at this situation. It's terrifying and it is dreadful. And the final beast that comes out is worse than them all. It progressively gets worse. It doesn't progressively get better. 
So you get to Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, and you should feel in yourself a little bit of angst, fear. The, the symbols and the themes, they're trying to draw something out of you. There's some things we've got to do with these eight verses to help us understand a little more. This sea that is being talked about, that these beasts come out of, it's symbolic of something. In fact, it's hinting on a biblically-based theme in Scripture. The sea in Scripture regularly stands for the peoples or nations of the earth. Regularly stands for the peoples or nations of the earth. It's symbolic of the darkness of humanity. Outside of the wisdom of God as they try to exploit and govern in their own wisdom and strength. It's a picture of chaos, of unrest, of turmoil, and of danger that's brought about by earthly dominion. So this is the picture. There is chaos. It's unrest. It's turmoil. This is the nations of the world outside of God's wisdom. And then what do we see coming up from this picture? Another image. A beast. One that is a lion that has eagle's wings. And as I looked at its wings, they were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. In the biblical text, specifically the books of Jeremiah and of Isaiah, Babylon is referenced as being a lion and an eagle. Those are the two references that are most commonly used to talk about Babylon. This first beast that arises out of the ocean is the nation of Babylon. And when we see that Babylon is the first kingdom, we get an important insight into this passage. What's interesting is this beast, which we know from Daniel chapter 7, verse 17, is a kingdom. This beast has human components to it. Did you notice that? He's got the feet like a man and the mind of a man. It's seemingly less beastly than the other kings, isn't it? It has the mind of a man. It has part of its body is like a man. It stands like a man. This is not as beastly as the other kingdoms. This is really interesting. Because if you would look with me at verse 13, which we'll get to in a minute, the kingdom of God is marked by one who came like a son of man. That's going to matter in the end, but humanity restored is the marker of the heavenly kingdom. As Nebuchadnezzar is later in his life becomes very friendly to the people of God, we're seeing that his kingdom becomes more human. Less beastly. But this is important. <laughs> it's important to note that even a nation that's friendly to the people of God is still a beast and will still be judged. The next beast that comes out of the ocean is one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. 
Now, the common interpretation of this is that this is the Medo-Persian Empire, which we know comes. You didn't know you're getting a history lesson, but welcome to the book of Daniel. The bear that was raised up on one side signifies that there's, there's a side that's greater than the other. It signifies two parts. In fact, if we read Daniel chapter 8, it will come out and just straight up say that there is a ram with two horns, one is larger than the other, and it's the Medo-Persian Empire. So we see this. We have a bear who has one side raised up from the other. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. And the bear has three ribs in its mouth, and they're not smoked or Texas barbecue, <laughs> but it's symbolic of three major conquests that the Medo-Persian Empire will have. It's... Lydia and Egypt and Babylon. And then there's this phrase that said, and, and, and forgive the amount of text, uh, we need it today, it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Now this seems to be the calling card of these nations, not just Medo-Persia. All of these beasts are known for their destructive devouring of humanity, but beasts for all of their supposed power will never bring about life only destruction and death. It moves on to the fourth beast. It has four heads and four wings like a bird. In Scripture, the, the leopard and the, and the bird represents speed and distance. And so many believe that this fourth beast would have been pointing to the Greece, or to Greece. And Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world in a mere 10 years, conquers the known world in, in 10 years. And when he dies, the kingdom is divided into four pieces. In Scripture, we know that heads symbolizes government. So the four heads is the division of that kingdom into four pieces. And so we're starting to see there's a historical aspect to this that's at play. God is giving Daniel a picture of what's to come and the nations and the turmoil that will be from them. But if you would notice with me, something happens in the fourth beast that we need to pay close attention to. Behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up and among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. I think that this text is really trying to get us to see something with this fourth beast. The temptation for us will to say, well, we have three beasts that fit neatly into history. Let's fit the fourth beast neatly into history. But the text goes out of its way to say that this beast is different. It's different. There's something about it. We're going to touch a little bit more on it next week, but it's important that we note something about this fourth kingdom. It's different. 
It's a kingdom in which human evil and rebellion reach their apex. It, I think that there is something to be said about this being characterized by the domain of darkness that Satan holds in his kingdom. This kingdom seems to me to be the kingdom behind all other kingdoms. Specifically, all other kingdoms that come against God and his people. We can follow this line of thinking to Revelation chapters 12 through 17, which gives us a picture of another beast that is greater than all the others that will deceive the nations, that will war against the people of God. Why would I spend so much time explaining those things to you today? Why would we do that? Why would we think that that's important? Well, I think it's important that we understand the symbolism because there's something happening here. And I think it's certainly theological, but I'm not going to tell you what I think is going to happen in the end times today, other than God wins. But here's what I do think is important from this passage and, and why I didn't want to skip over it really quickly. Um, here's what we know from the book of Daniel and from Scripture as a whole. Human rule outside of God's wisdom is beastly. It's beastly. In Genesis 1 and 2, in the Garden of Eden, humanity is under God's rule, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. They're invited to rule and subdue the earth, to carry God's happy rule with them everywhere, to spread His dominion throughout the entire creation to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth. It's a beautiful thing. But we know that something happens in, Dan, or in Genesis chapter 3. There is sin that enters the story, rebellion against God. And what the biblical storyline wants us to notice in that moment is that when we seek to rule outside of God's rule, we don't become more, we become less. We become less. So Genesis 3, we see the serpent tempts the people of God with a desire to be like God. The problem with that, if we're careful to read the story, is that they were created in God's image. They already were like God. There's something that God possessed that they were not intended to possess, that they desired. It was rule without an authority. <laughs> It was rule on their own. It was to be the sovereign self. They sought aspects of God that God did not create them for. Brothers and sisters, you and I were not created for the sovereign self. You and I were not created to be our own rulers. And personal autonomy does not make us freer or more impressive we actually become more beastly and less human. What the beasts in this story coming out of the ocean, coming out of the sea, are teaching us is that human kingdoms, no matter how friendly they are to God's people, are beasts. They can't be anything other than that because they aren't God's kingdom. God wants his people to know and take hold of this truth. Kingdoms of this world are nothing more than beasts that will be defeated. That's important. That's important for us to hold on to. 
It makes sense of a lot of human history. It makes sense of what would sometimes be viewed as beastly humanity. It makes sense of genocides throughout history, of slave trades, of human trafficking, of nations that haven't done anything substantial to put an end to pornography, which is pretty much just a legal industry that literally consumes people like objects. It makes sense of things like racism, of sexual abuse. It makes sense of abortion. All of it, all of those things are the direct result of humans who have become less than human and treat others as less than human, creating kingdoms and peoples that are beasts. Here's what I'm going to do for this sermon. Next week, we're going to finish this chapter. We're going to talk a lot about some of the other details surrounding this, but this week, what I want to just focus on is the beastly nature of human kingdoms and the truly human nature of God's kingdom. You see, we, we just talked about many of these areas where people are treated as less than, are, are devoured, as treated as less than human, creating kingdoms and peoples that are beasts. And one of those threads that I mentioned is the threat of pornography. It is an industry that fuels human trafficking. It is an industry that not only that calls for you to treat people and their bodies as commodities for consumption. And as a result, the industry turns humans not in something to be more valued or respected, but into something to be desired and devoured. So instead of holding tightly to the doctrine of the Imago Dei that within humans is the very image of God and because of that they are deserving of inherent dignity, value, and worth, we turn humanity into a product to be bought and sold for someone's own self-gratification. And when that happens, when that happens, Society begins to look at people created in the image of God not as truly human, but instead as less than human. And there's a ripple effect to that. There's a ripple effect to a society that treats humans as a means to our own end. And I think we're seeing it. We're seeing identity confusion all over the place. Why? Because people have been told that they're not valuable. They're just a body to be consumed. We see sexual abuse running rampant because we've encouraged devouring for personal satisfaction. Entertainment companies pick up on this and, they, and so they begin to give the people what they want. What sells? That's what we're producing. Marriage becomes a union of self-gratification instead of a covenant that reflects God's sacrificial love. Governments largely ignore the issue because it benefits the economy. Did you know that the porn industry worldwide is worth almost a trillion dollars? It's more profitable than the NFL, the MLB, and the NBA combined. And guess who the number one producer of pornographic content is? Our great United States. Beastly, when nations put the sovereign self in front of them, we become beasts. We do not become more, we become less.
and we devour, destroy. Humanity becomes less than and society suffers. Society suffers because we've lost the doctrine of humanity that we've been created in God's image. Pornography is not a victimless sin. It deeply affects society because it's a marker of a society that is determined humanity isn't really human. That's one example. I could give you countless examples of other nations and other kingdoms throughout history that have devoured humanity, turning humans into less than humans. Why? Because that's what beasts always do. They devour, looking at humanity as less than human. And brothers and sisters, this goes far further than simply internet usage. This goes to how we treat grocers and checkers and waiters and the people who cut us off in traffic and who inconvenience us and who disagree with our opinions. Anytime we feel like we have the right to make somebody else less than human, it's because we are a direct byproduct of a kingdom that is beastly and it's discipling us. It's discipling us in a direction of treating others as less than human. This is the result of beastly kingdoms. Every kingdom, every kingdom that is not the kingdom of God devours and destroys. And then we come to verses 9 through 14. And I'll be quick, I think. Probably not. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Years ago, so my family, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. And one, this one time came where my parents had been able to, to save up a certain amount, and so they, they finally purchased a new van that was used. 
And so it was a brand new van to our family that was used, and, and we were very excited about this. It was more, more recent, and there was this new technology that had come out with this specific model of van, and it was speed-sensitive volume control. Have you ever heard of this? Speed-sensitive volume control? I hear it's gotten a lot better since we had that van. So when, what speed-sensitive volume control is, is that the car computer would be uh, aware of the speed of the car, and it would turn the volume up or down of the radio based on how fast the car was going. This is a real thing. This is a real thing. This wasn't just a mechanical error, although it was in this car. So this car, when we would, we would get in the car, we'd set the music to a nice, encouraging pace, right? It would be, be beautiful, and we'd be driving 35, and then we'd get on the freeway, and we'd get up to 65 to 70, in some places in California, up to 80. And as we're driving, not only would the noise of the road get louder, the noise of the music would get louder. And so it was just like, okay, and then the people in the car that are talking are getting louder. And so it's just insanely loud and chaotic and a mess. And then you'd exit and the music would just almost turn off. And so it went from insane chaos to silence like that. The scene change was incredible. And that's what's happening in our text today. This is an abrupt scene change. Instead of the frightening vision of the beasts, we get an insight into heaven where the Ancient of Days, or God, sits as a judge. Ancient of Days sounds like they're just calling him old, but just so we're clear about the context, this is not a stodgy view of an old God. Remember the original context. He's distinguished as holding the wisdom of all of time. And this is a vision that should invite us into a peaceful resistance to the beast and beastly kingdoms. As the beast incite frenzied fear and confusion, the ancient days sitting on his throne, ready, ancient of days sitting on his throne, ready to judge, invites us to see human history as it truly is. He's sitting down. He's quietly preparing for judgment. The beast, the kingdom of beasts, does not win in this story. As it devours, its ending is not one of life. Its ending is one of destruction. And the chaos in verses 1 through 8 is contrasted with the peaceful strength of verses 9 through 14. A king sitting on his throne. The great beast in this moment is speaking against God. And against his people, as we'll find out in the next section of Scripture next week. And then out of nowhere, look, look at this, verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed. Who killed the beast? Doesn't tell us. He just is killed. The great beast is destroyed. The rest of the beasts are defeated. Their dominion is taken away. They no longer have power. How does this happen? Well, look at verses 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, 
and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So who's the one that comes and receives the kingdom from God? He receives all of the dominion. Who is it? It's one like the Son of Man, one who is human. So you have human contrasted with beasts. And we have one of those beasts who becomes slightly more human when he's friendly to the people of God. Are we understanding that? Right? You see where I'm getting that? Now here's what's crazy. The eternal kingdom isn't given to a beast. It's not given to a spiritual being. It's given to the perfect image of God found in human form. In the book of Matthew, one of Jesus' favorite names for himself is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. We see the Son of Man bringing about the reality of a truly human kingdom. He's healing people. He's teaching them what life in the kingdom is like. He's forgiving sins. And instead of sacrificing others for his kingdom, he sacrifices himself for the sake of the kingdom. He's not after others for his own gratification. He's after sacrifice of himself so that others would be welcomed in. He establishes an eternal kingdom that transcends beastly kingdoms and reigns forever. And what's the invitation at the end of the book of Matthew? That he has all authority. The Son of Man has all authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations so that all peoples, all nations, all languages would be brought into this kingdom where people become truly human, no longer beasts devouring people, no longer less than human, truly human because he is human. The Son of Man establishes an eternal kingdom that transcends beastly kingdoms and reigns forever. And here in this passage, as this beast is speaking great words against God and against his people, what we know throughout the rest of Scripture is that this great beast is Satan and he is the accuser. He accuses God's people. He comes before God and spews accusation against God's people and therefore accusations against God. And as Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of his people, he silences the accuser, destroying his power. And after his death and resurrection, the Son of Man who holds all authority in heaven and on earth ascends to the right hand of the Ancient of Days where his life, death, and resurrection have destroyed the power of the great beast and taken away the dominion of the nations where he invites everyone to be a part of his kingdom which transcends cultural bounds, which transcends national bounds. It's why a group of people who have no reason to be in a room together can be in a room together right now because our king is not defined by your family of origin. Our king is not defined by your own ability to make it happen for yourself. Our king is not defined by your social status. Our king is not defined... <laughs> By your national status, our king is defined by himself. And the invitation to his kingdom is to repent of our beastly ways. And through his death and resurrection on the cross, be invited into true humanity. Where lives are changed and people are healed and sins are forgiven. He establishes the kingdom of God where people can come and find life. So maybe this morning you're reading through 
about the kingdom of beasts and you're just feeling incredibly convicted about your own beastly way of living and consuming and using others. The invitation for you today is to turn to the Son of Man who maintains dominion forever and ever and invites you into his kingdom to become truly human. Jesus offers you life and his kingdom is marked by your humanity being restored. No longer hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh wired and knit together by the God of the universe who created humanity in his image to take his kingdom forward. And the way that we do that is through Christ. Come, find life in him. Come and be freed from the commodity-driven view of humanity. Come and be freed of beastly living. He has silenced the accuser. He's taken the power of the beast. You can be restored because he has been enthroned forever. Forever. This last piece of this puzzle is really important. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The beast's power is destroyed as soon as Jesus removes shame. But Jesus' power is an eternal power that will last forever. It's a kingdom without end. It's a kingdom with hope. And it's a kingdom where you and I can be invited no longer into beastly living where we devour everything in our path. but into true humanity, bought and paid for by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. This is true reality. Let's live into that. Father, we come before you now knowing that we ourselves are guilty of beastliness, of commodity-driven views of life, of consumption. That we have given in to beastly kingdoms and we have created beastly kingdoms and we have in our own hearts and minds set ourselves on the throne. And in doing so, we have not become more like what you intended us to be, we became less. And yet you sent your son who took on flesh, who became truly human so that we might have a pathway to restored humanity and life forevermore. Help us. Help us to turn to you knowing that you, the author and finisher of our faith, sit on the throne forever and ever to never be destroyed. We thank you for that. We thank you that your kingdom is not a kingdom that leads to destruction and devouring, but your kingdom is a kingdom that leads to life. 
Help us to be primarily known by that kingdom. It's in your name we pray.